hello, hello. Welcome to back to another episode of Salt Lime Storytime. I'm Allison, and that is Jess. Hello, hello. So excited to be here. Back again. Mm-hmm. Jess, you seem a little different. There's something on your hand there that I'm seeing. What, what's that You about? know, this old thing? Oh, mm. this lovely ring? Mm. Oh, you know, I just got engaged this week. That's all. Oh, no big deal. It wasn't Casual. the cutest thing I've ever seen, ever. It wasn't, like, the best day of my life or anything like that. No, partially I've also perhaps the best day of mine, too. It, it was it was very beautiful. Uh, I got to witness it. I hid behind a bench and took their photos as he popped the question in the mm-hmm. beautiful Red Butte Garden in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. It was as magical of any experience as I could possibly wish for anyone. Um, I 10 out of 10 recommend getting engaged to your best friend and the person that you love. So yeah, I'm still a little bit in like Twitter pated shock that it happened, but. Sure, sure. I believe that as you should be. I mean, it's a hopefully a once in a lifetime experience. I know, right? Hopefully, fingers crossed. Statistically speaking, both of our parents are married still. So statistically speaking, we're doing all right. (laughs) Yeah, I think so too. You guys have great uh, parental relationships, so. Yes. All right. Are we ready to maybe just jump right in? Let's get into it. Do you want to explain to the people what this episode's theme is while I have a hot flash? (laughs) Yeah, Jess is um, 48 years old, so she's going through menopause. It's also um, almost 90 degrees in Utah today. Happy May, I guess. Anyway, so this is our surprise episode where we don't have a theme we each just bring a topic to the other person without them knowing what it is so that Mm -hmm. just a topic that we find interesting and the topic that I chose is one that I I heard about this and was like I need to have my own podcast because I want to tell this story over and over and over again so many times and it was literally one of the stories that made me want to have a podcast so Jess you're gonna be forced to listen to it because we, we have a podcast now uh can't wait. and I can't wait to tell you I will be going first but Jess yes you're absolutely absolutely going to hate this story Especially I can't wait because to hate it. you just uh, flew for work earlier this week. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad that you. I so we were supposed to record this last Monday, and I'm sneaky glad that I didn't hear this before I went on my mm-hmm. work trip. If no, this is too. what I think it is, because I had to fly alone for the first time. Which actually, you guys, I'd like to report that I think that I figured out part of my plane anxiety and that is when I'm on the plane with other people that I care about because flying alone was a breeze like it was a way more rough flight than the flight there and I was fine so that's all that's my yeah, life your, your, co- your plane was also delayed originally yes and okay so <laughs> can I just sorry I know that I said that I didn't have anything else to say can I just say that I genuinely think that I need a plane cleansing? And if anybody knows of, like, how to go about that, please DM me. Because here's the thing. The last six planes I've been on have had some very weird niche thing wrong with them that has caused an hour to two hour delay and or a deplaning and or a complete cancellation of the flight. Six planes in a row. My coworker who I traveled with was like, I'm never traveling with you again. The... <laughs> On my plane back from Houston, where I was at for work, 
something malfunctioned with the catering carts and the flight attendant was like i've been a flight attendant for 15 years and i've literally never seen this happen they had to replace a catering cart latch like (laughs) i'm cursed i'm literally cursed i would say that's right and then once you got to your hotel room what was the number oh my god so then when I got into got into Houston after my semi-scary flight from Salt Lake to Houston, we get into the hotel and first off, uh, we're expensing this trip. So I like paid for it on my own card. Um, I forgot to notify my bank that I was in Houston. So they couldn't I couldn't check in for 15 minutes because my card kept declining because my bank thought I was having fraud. So then I had to go and like mess with the bank. And then finally I got in after all of this and my coworkers all thinking I'm poor. I end up upstairs and I look at my room no- number because all I had known is that I was on floor nine. I was in room 911. It's fine. It's fine. You know, it is what it is. Yeah, no, that 9-11 room number story had me crying laughing as soon as you told me. I thought it, it was just, what are the odds? Because you had already been like, my, all my flights are delayed. My coworker said she's never flying with me again. And then you're like, my room number's 9-11. I was like, I, if you ever die in a plane crash, it is my fault. And I'm really sorry. There's just like no, no winning in my world when it comes to airplane travel. No, there's really not. Uh, and I'm about to kind of ruin that again for you too, even more. But before we start, I actually, there's something I made for you that I would like to show you. I okay. hope it doesn't ruin our friendship. I um, did it out of love and jest only. I made this uh, when I was editing the Pioneer episode. It is almost two minutes long. Okay, ready? This is just you. You're so mean. We recorded that for like three hours. cracking me up and so I decided to make that for you so that people know how much we actually cut out <laughs> um, I say that a lot too well, not quite as bad as you but you know um, um well um, um anyway do you want fuck me I guess yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you, do you want to learn about uh, a disaster now yeah yeah I'm sure you do cool well this is one of the stories that made me want to start my own podcast because I was so enthralled with this and I just needed to tell somebody about it. And I remember after I actually learned about it, I FaceTimed you and made you listen to it. Just a short version of what I learned in a, like a 30 minute video that I watched about it. So Jess, this is the Tenerife airport disaster. Dear God. Yeah, you're not going to like it. I can guarantee you that much for sure. I'm going to list my sources real fast. 
The most accurate source and the one that I watched very first, and this is the first place I ever saw it, was on Mentor Pilot's YouTube video about the Tenerife Airport disaster. He is a really wonderful, he, he's a pilot and he reads through the final flight or disaster or crash records and makes a, a video about them. Let's not dramatize, it's just the facts. And it's probably the most trustworthy place to get information about plane crashes. And I'm obsessed with his channel and I watch him all the time. So I watched his first. and That's where I got a lot of the facts from. There's also a Prime video documentary called The Crash of the Century. It is very dramatized, but has a lot of firsthand accounts in it that are really good. An amazing article by Confessions of a Trolley Dolly about Dorothy Kelly, my wife, who we will get to in a minute. And an article by Admiral Klopberg and an article by John Zoymek. So, with that being said, let's do it. On March 27th, 1977, two Boeing 747 jumbo jets made their way to the Canary Islands from different parts of the world. Now, these are the jets that have basically two levels to them. They're huge. They're no, I know, large. I know exactly what you mean. Um, they're the huge ones that like stairs on an airplane which is a traumatizing concept to i me, completely but. agree but yes stairs on an airplane so two of these enormous jets made their way to the canary islands from different parts of the world the first was dutch flight klm 4805 which took off from amsterdam with 249 passengers and crew on board most of the people on this flight were young dutch families including 53 children taking an easter vacation to the canary islands its cockpit crew consisted of captain jacob van zanten age 50 First Officer Klaus Muers, 42, and Flight Engineer Willem Schroeder, 48. At the same time of the accident, Captain Van Zanten was KLM's chief flight instructor. He was the poster child of the KLM company, so much so that he rarely flew anymore and mostly trained other pilots and advertised for the airline. Like, if you if you look up his name, here's literally just a picture of him in a magazine spread. Like, he was poster boy for this company. So the other plane was America's Pan Am Flight 1736. It had originated at Los Angeles International Airport and made a few stops along the way to pick up other passengers. There were 396 total occupants on board that day. Most of the passengers were retired and on their way to a 10-day cruise waiting for them on the Canary Islands. The cockpit crew consisted of Captain Victor Grubbs, 56, First Officer Robert Bragg, 39, and Flight Engineer George Warns, 46, and I have to say, those have to be three of the best last names I've ever heard for a disaster flight crew, Grubbs, yeah, Bragg, and Warns. Seems like quite literally. You no, know, they all did those things, I'm sure, <laughs> in the cockpit. I, well, I know they all did those things. So both flights had been routine until they approached the island. Shortly after 1 p.m., a phone call was made to the Grand Canaria Airport warning of a bomb planted by the separatist Canary Islands Independent Movement terrorist group. The group wanted to raise awareness for their cause, which was wanting the Canary Islands to gain independence from Spain, which had had control over them for a while now. Uh, they never actually intended on killing anyone, which is why they warned the airport first. So when the bomb actually exploded inside one of the terminals, it injured eight people, but most of the others were able to evacuate in time, so nobody actually died because of the bomb. There was word there might be another bomb, so the civil aviation authorities had to close the airport temporarily after the first explosion in case there was a second. And all of the incoming flights bound for Gran Canaria had been diverted to the airport on Tenerife Island, 30 minutes away. 
Tenerife Airport, which was much smaller and not equipped to accommodate jumbo jets, found themselves in an extremely overwhelming situation. It was a Sunday and there were only two people in the air traffic control tower, which on a normal day would be fine. So to put this into words we can understand, they are the equivalent of two servers alone at a small diner watching 20 packed tour buses pull into the parking lot at the same time, all expecting close parking spots and great service. So in other words, absolute literal hell. Just the worst. Absolutely not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But interestingly enough, the Tenerife airport had a history of being unsafe with several fatal accidents having already taken place in the previous years. One of the biggest factor for this was its unpredictable weather. Because of the location of the island and its mountains, heavy fog was very common, and within a matter of seconds, you could have a completely clear day drop to almost no visibility. They were actually in the process of building another airport on on the other side of the island where the weather was better, but it just was not quite finished yet. So the two air traffic controllers at Tenerife do their best to direct the traffic and get the planes parked in positions correctly, right? However... The runway itself is basically shaped like the letter, like an uppercase D. The long straight line is the runway, if you can picture that. And the curved line connecting both ends is the taxiway where all the planes are parked. There is a space to park off the taxiway, but that was already full. So they didn't have any other choice. And so basically the runway was like the only clear and open part of the airport. There are also several diagonal exits connecting the runway and the taxiway. So basically picture like the letter D with some diagonal slits down the middle. So that's how the planes could get off and on earlier or later after they land or take off. So (laughs) these jumbo jets are stacked bumper to bumper, full of annoyed passengers and crew awaiting instruction. Nobody knows how long the diversion will last and many passengers are worried they will miss their plans. So, meanwhile, KLM captain Jakob Van Zanten lets his passengers actually leave the aircraft and wander around the Tenerife Terminal building. Robina Van Landshot was a passenger on board with her two friends, all flying back to their home on the Canary Islands. While exiting the plane to wait in the terminals, Robina recalls her friend Walter looking at the sea of planes before them with a concerned look on his face. She said, quote, I can remember his words so well because he was standing next to me. He was looking outside and said, this is going to go wrong. This can't go right. End quote. So shortly after the KLM passengers left for the terminal, the Pan Am flight landed and was parked behind their plane. At this point, the terminal was full, so the Pan Am crew got permission to allow the passengers to walk out onto the tarmac and stretch their legs, which is just so not something that would ever happen today. And for good reason, I'm sure. The pilots also allowed people to come in and look at the cockpit and ask questions, making it a more positive experience for everybody. Irma Schlett was a passenger on the Pan Am flight. I don't know. How how do you say S-C-H-L-E-C-H-T? I have no clue, but I love how you just said it. (laughs) Irma Schlett. Yeah. S-C-H-L-E-C-H-T. It's a doozy of a name i'm telling you anyway so our girl irma was a passenger on the pan am flight and she recalls exiting the plane and seeing that it was pretty cloudy and fog was starting to roll in and she was not the only person to notice this as well the klm crew the dutch crew who had allowed their passengers to go into the terminal were actually in much worse spirits than anybody on the pan am so they were worried that this delay and the incoming fog would put them in overtime There were strict Dutch government rules in place limiting overtime for flight crews. All these factors, along with their scheduled continuing flight from Gran Canaria to Amsterdam that same day, would really push 
that government time limit. If they flew longer than they were supposed to, they would have their licenses revoked and they could face legal penalties. So because of this, Captain Van Zanten made the decision to refuel the plane now while they were stopped so they could have time once they were finally able to land at Gran Canaria Airport. So it, it actually was like a fairly reasonable idea to refill now while they already had to wait. So they didn't have to do it when they got to Gran Canaria, when everybody else wanted to refill. So, I mean, you can understand why he made that decision. But ironically, just after the refueling started, Grand Canaria Airport reopened. So now, although everyone was anxious to leave Tenerife, KLM was temporarily immobile, waiting for the fuel trucks to finish. Several smaller passenger jets were able to taxi around the KLM and onto the runway and leave Tenerife, but Pan Am, parked behind KLM, was too large to scoot around. <laughs> and they used the word scoot. Like, they were trying to, like, shimmy on past this other... Like, these are jumbo jets. Okay, you can't just shimmy a jumbo jet. Anyway, they know that. So Captain Victor Grubbs of Pan Am went so far as to have his co-pilot and engineer exit the plane and measure if they could squeeze past them or not. In total, they were 12 feet short of making it, so they actually had to wait. They called the KLM cockpit and asked how much longer it would be, to which the captain Van Zatten responded, 35 minutes, and hung up on them. And they were like, okay, oh, you're an asshole. Like, they were... Literally, like, wow, I guess this guy's gonna, you know, he was just being a total dick to everybody else. And, like, to the air traffic controllers, everybody. Like, he was being so impatient. Well before the refueling had finished, KLM rounded up all the passengers who'd been browsing in the terminal and brought them back to the waiting plane. All that is, except for Robina Van Landshot, who I mentioned before. She actually lived on Tenerife Island and thought it pointless to fly to Gran Canaria, then return to Tenerife the next day as originally planned. Her friends pressured her to return to the plane with them since they had dinner plans in the city that night, but she was insistent on staying since she missed her boyfriend who lived nearby. It was decided that she would wait there and her friends would send her luggage when they landed in Gran Canaria. Then she walked to a payphone, called her boyfriend, and was gone from the airport by the time the KLM began taxiing. She did not yet know how significant that decision would be. Boom. You just fucking wait and I'm going to tell you how significant that decision really oh, was, Jess. I have a sneaking suspicion that her friends did not make their dinner party. You're correct, Jess. They, they did not make their dinner plans. And at this point, I, Allison, the captain, would like to ask you to take your seat and fasten your seatbelt because this shit's about to get real bumpy. Up, down, loop-de-loop, -loop, crashes, explosions, and I just want to make sure that you're buckled and nice and safe, okay? I am buckled and my tray table has been returned to the upright position. As your seat back, too, I hope. And thank you for flying um, Lesbo Airlines. Appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> so, Lesbo Airlines, what would we serve on that flight? Looks? Winks? Ass slaps, I don't know. Lip gloss, uh, chapstick. Yeah. <laughs> chapstick. <laughs> chapstick lipstick. Flannels for all the flight crew, beanies for everybody working. TM. Okay, by the way, TM for Lesbo yeah. Airlines. I call dibs. I call dibs on that. So Homegirl bounced and was like, bye friends. I'm gonna go hang out with my boyfriend. And they were like, Alright, we'll send you your luggage. And so she did not get back on the KLM flight. She was the only passenger that didn't. So in total, the Dutch captain Van Zanten of the KLM flight added 55 tons of fuel to get them to Grand Canaria and back to Amsterdam within their time limit. So finally, the planes were ready to taxi up the runway, turn around, and take off. 
The plan was that the KLM flight would taxi up the runway, followed by the Pan Am flight, which would then take an exit onto the last half of the taxiway, which was now clear of other planes because some had time to actually like funnel through and take off. So once they had exited, the KLM flight would turn around and take off. Then the Pan Am flight would take off shortly afterwards because they're clear of the runway at this point. So does that make sense? Like what they're thinking here? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so they're on the D, right? And <laughs> KLM sure. is going to go down the taxi, flip a Yui, and then they're going to fly. No, they're and then because Pan Am the runway. Yes. And yes. then they're they have to turn around yeah. and then go, then mm-hmm. they'll take off, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Pan Am behind them is supposed to take a little a little side side quest exit. Mm. Yes. And hang out in one of those diagonals. Yeah. So, so they can turn around, re-taxi, and then fly. Yeah. So half the taxiway was still full of planes. And so, but on the last, like, last few exits, those were clear of planes now. So basically they could just exit and then use the taxiway like it's actually supposed to be used as a fucking taxiway. And then wait in a safe position out of the way and behind the KLM plane. As they take off, and then they take their spot and take off, too. So it was yes. just a really efficient way to get them both off the ground very quickly in the best time possible. So meanwhile, <laughs> the fog was getting thicker by the minute, and visibility was quickly decreasing. Pan Am captain Victor Grubbs recalls following the KLM plane up the runway and watching the fog roll in over the hills and settle directly over them. He said the visibility went from unlimited to 500 meters in a matter of seconds, and they lost sight of the KLM plane. Meanwhile, on the KLM plane, the voice recordings recall the captain saying that he could barely see the pavement and they had to taxi even slower. He continues to complain that they might have to stay the night in Gran Canaria when they land so they don't go in overtime. The Pan Am pilots are beginning to worry. They knew the KLM would soon turn around and take off, and they needed to exit the runway, but air traffic control's instructions as to which exit to take were unclear due to accent barriers and just general miscommunications. Pan Am also knew that their minimum visibility requirement for takeoff was 700 meters, but they were at 500 meters, so they wondered if they were stuck and they even could take off at all. So... Now they're traveling even slower, trying to determine which exit was which, and whether they had the visibility to take off or not. And one of the ways that the captain described this in the documentary I watched was, planes are meant for flying, not driving. <laughs> it's really hard to see out the top of one of those planes to try to find an exit, like a small exit. It's really difficult to tell, especially in the fog. So they can't be like completely blamed for not knowing which was which. So back in the control tower, things are stressful too. The fog is so thick that they can't see the runway or either of the planes. And again, because they are such a small airport, they are without any sort of ground radar. So everybody is working blind. Jess just closed her eyes slowly. like She knows what's coming. So now it is just after 5 p.m. KLM has reached the end of the runway and turned around. Pan Am is still slowly taxiing behind them, trying to find the right exit. The two jumbo jets are now face-to-face, a kilometer, or a little over a half mile for our American friends, apart, unable to see each other through the fog. The KLM captain knows- Come on, guys. (laughs) Yeah, so the two jumbo jets are now face-to-face, a kilometer apart, unable to see each other through the fog. 
The KLM captain knows that if he waits any longer, the fog will be too thick and they won't be able to take off. So he starts accelerating. His co-pilot jumps in and says, wait a minute, we don't have air traffic control clearance. To which the captain stops accelerating and says, I know that. Go ahead, ask. The co-pilot asks for clearance and the cockpit recordings indicate he was stressed and stumbling over his words. They do get clearance from air traffic control, meaning they were given the routing instructions they needed after takeoff, but they still have yet to get permission to actually take off. Those always come separate. But the KLM captain either doesn't care or misunderstands the clearance as approval for takeoff, which it isn't. He interrupts and says, we're going and starts accelerating again. Pan Am, who is on the same radio frequency, hears this and starts yelling, no, no, we're still taxiing down the runway. We'll report when we're clear. This message was either ignored or misheard by the KLM captain, who is now accelerating down the runway at full speed. So. Yeah. Why do we fly? I, I don't know, Jess. I really don't. In what scenario am I sitting on a runway as a pilot with this much fog staring down at me thinking fuck it we ball Mm -hmm. like i get i get the overtime like i've been on a plane in which the crew got hit overtime and had to that we had that's why we had to deplane is because the crew hit their overtime and so we couldn't fly like i get the frustration and like the wanting to avoid your passengers having that frustration but like i don't want to be dead yeah yeah and i think that this is a prime example of why they might want to lock up on those rules just a tiny bit in certain situations so people don't make decisions like this. But anyway, so yeah, Pan Am yells back on the same radio frequency. No, we're on the runway. We'll report when we're clear. KLM either ignores that or mishears it and keeps going at full speed. KLM's co-pilot and engineer, however, did hear this warning and are yelling at him, asking if the Pan Am is clear, to which the captain responds, oh, yes and keeps going. Every second, the KLM is going faster and faster. At the same time, the Pan Am is finally reaching their exit, but suddenly they see the lights of the KLM jumbo jet approaching them on the runway through the fog. The Pan Am captain grubs yells, God damn, that son of a bitch is coming straight at us. At this time, his co-pilot yells, Get off, get off, get off. Captain Grubbs turns the jet to the left as hard as he can and accelerates fully to try to get off the runway in time. Inside the KLM cockpit, Captain Van Zatten spotted the Pan Am desperately trying to clear the runway. He is heard screaming the Dutch profanity, Oh God, verdome! and pulls back on the yoke as hard as he can, begging for the jet to take off. This causes the bottom back end of the plane to scrape along the runway because the nose is too high and it is too heavy to lift. It is at that moment that the two planes collide. The KLM flight, now traveling at over 160 miles an hour, T-bones the Pan Am as it tries to get off the runway. Both engines on KLM's right wing slice through Pan Am's upper deck first class lounge, and at the same time, its landing gear rips through the body of the Pan Am, causing even more severe destruction. The KLM plane remains airborne briefly and flies down the runway for several hundred more feet before it rolls and slams into the ground without its landing gear, which had been torn off, and explodes into flames, killing all 248 passengers and crew on board. (sighs) Yeah. So, meanwhile, on board the Pan Am flight, it is complete pandemonium. 
Joan Jackson, a flight attendant, said the first thing she noticed was a huge, loud noise, and the only thing she could liken it to was if each molecule of air around her exploded. Passenger Irma Schlecht, Schlecht, Passenger Irma thought at first they had been bombed. She described the plane getting thrown up and then slammed back down. Quote, the lights went out and flames came through. I put my hands over my face and said, Lord, today I'll see you. Pan Am's flight engineer reached up to pull the emergency engine off lever, but was shocked to find that the roof of the cockpit was completely gone and his hand was grasping air. Co-pilot Robert Bragg recalls looking up and seeing all of the windows in the cockpit were missing. When he looked to his right, he saw the right wing was on fire. He looked over his left shoulder and saw that there was a big hole where the roof of the plane and upstairs lounge should be. From his seat in the cockpit, he could see all the way to the tail of the airplane like someone had taken a big knife and cut the top off. Captain Grubbs jumps down through a hole in the first class section of the airplane to try to escape. When he hit, the floor collapsed and he fell into the cargo area. It was so hot that oxygen balls exploded and he was burned very badly, but he did survive. Oh my god. Yeah. And so, meanwhile, the Pan Am flight attendants are trying to get the shocked survivors out of the plane. Most passengers were just sitting motionless in their seats, too stunned to move. One flight attendant, Suzanne Donovan, recalls yelling, Unfasten your seatbelts, remove your shoes, leave everything, come this way. But as she went to open the emergency exit, it just crumpled like tinfoil in her hands. Another flight attendant, Joan, saw this happen and climbed through a hole in the roof and yelled, Take my hand, Suzanne did, and with one hand, Joan hoisted her up and on top of the burning plane. The flight attendants looked around. They likened it to standing on floating debris in a sea of fire. Apart from where they were standing, the roof of the plane was almost completely gone, and the rest of it was quickly disintegrating around them. Great. Yeah. (laughs) And, Jess, it probably goes without saying... That the jumbo jet Boeing 747 is very, very, very tall. And from where they're standing, they are easily over two stories off the ground. Just like... Even better. Look out your window right now. And that's... They were probably a little higher than that. Okay? So, feels real bad, right? Joan knew that if they jumped, they would probably break their legs. But around them, the roaring engines were exploding and throwing metal. The two quickly lost hold of each other, so Suzanne had no choice but to try, and she jumped. She said it seemed like the leap from a second-story building, and she somehow landed safely and was able to escape. Now, oh my gosh, I would like, if I may, to speak of one more flight attendant uh, who I fell in love with after reading this story. She's my wife, the one I spoke about earlier. So, a total badass, an incredible heroic woman. Oh, they're all heroic, I have to say. They're all heroic, but this lady is takes it to a new level, okay? So, Dorothy Kelly was hit over the head by a piece of aircraft uh, as the collusion happened and was smashed through the cabin floor and inside of the cargo bay. She woke up in total darkness, dazed and disoriented, completely unaware of what had happened, But she sees a tiny amount of light above her, which she headed towards and climbed out into the front of the plane. She was greeted by complete carnage. Quote, the KLM airplane had peeled off the top of the Pan Am plane, just like peeling off the top of a sardine can. Everyone in that section had gone. So 
At this point, her training kicked in and she started to direct the survivors. She desperately tried to look for an exit to begin an evacuation, but the still intact doors were jammed. As the fire grew, so did the explosions. She encouraged passengers to jump from a hole above the wing. When they refused, she pushed them out before jumping herself. Quote, It was like looking out of a second floor window about 25 feet down. And I was really scared because my feet were bare. And you saw nothing but jagged metal down there. And I said to myself, oh my god, we've survived this and we're going to kill ourselves jumping out on that stuff. End quote. So most of the passengers on board the flight were senior citizens and many injured themselves as they jumped from the opening above the wing. Disoriented and in shock, some of those who had jumped just stood around and chatted because they didn't know what else to do. That's when my wife, Dorothy Kelly, yelled for them to move as far away as possible. And those who couldn't move, she physically dragged them out of harm's way. She just kept going back and forth. She like she raced around helping the survivors. And at that point, she noticed something white under the front of the plane. And it turned out to be Captain Grubbs in his like white pilot's uniform. And he was the one who fell through the cargo bay and was badly burned. So he was unable to move. And so she fucking grabbed his arms and ran away from the plane just as the roaring engine finally exploded. A witness later said, quote, she looked like Roadrunner dashing backwards at 50 miles an hour. <laughs> oh, my God. Total badass, okay? So. Shout out. Love yeah. that. So, meanwhile, while all of this is happening, air traffic control can't see shit through the fog, and they can't get a hold of either of the jets. They have no idea what's going on. It wasn't until another plane waiting on the taxiway alerted them to the accident, saying that they could see flames and wreckage on the runway, that they were like, fuck, and smashed the alarm button and sent out the rescue team. But because of the fog, the rescuers had to drive slowly and nobody knew where to go. And they eventually just followed the heat because it was so hot because of all the tons of jet fuel burning. Like, they followed the heat to the crash. The rescuers got to the KLM wreckage first and assumed it was the only plane that had crashed, but it was hopeless. Everyone on that plane was already dead. The 55 tons of fuel the captain added ensured the plane would not take off in time and everyone died in a fiery explosion. As they tried to put out that fire, the Pan Am wreckage lay just a short distance away hidden in the mist with people waiting to be saved. It's another 20 minutes before the Pan Am plane is discovered. They had no idea two planes were. I hate this story. Isn't it the worst? (laughs) So it's so bad. And it was another 20 minutes before they were discovered. And Suzanne, the flight attendant, says, quote, It's hard to call what we did in evacuation. It just seemed to be people got out where holes were provided. It all seemed to be a matter of total luck, end quote. Only one emergency exit was successfully opened. This was done by a flight attendant who later lost her life when debris from the disintegrating engine hit her. Only 20% of the Pan Am passengers get out alive, and most gather on the left wing, which is the only part of the jet that had remained intact. So, oh my gosh. It was people's personal vehicles, like cars, trucks, and vans, that carried the survivors to the hospital. Pan Am's co pilot, Robert Bragg, recalls about 75% of the survivors were taken in taxi cabs. Karen Anderson was one of the was one of these survivors rushed to the hospital. She and her husband were on the flight to celebrate their 10th wedding anniversary in the Canary Islands, but after the collision, Karen got separated from her husband and he died in the flames. Yeah. She worked in no. a I know it was really sad. She you can like watch her tell this story and it's ugh. 
you just see her relive it in her eyes. It's devastating. Um, but she works in the medical field and recalls arriving at the hospital covered in blood head to toe. She approaches the doctor saying, I'm a doctor. Can I help? And he looked at her stunned, slowly shook his head and smiled. And she immediately collapsed into a coma. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. So inside the hospital, my wife and lover, Dorothy Kelly, refused treatment for her own wounds and volunteered to help the medical team. She busied herself labeling survivors' names, ages, and allergies, and it wasn't until, Jess, it wasn't until she tried to use a pair of scissors that she noticed her arm had been broken the whole fucking time, and she was like, okay, I guess you guys can, like, treat my arm so that I can go back to helping these people. Like, she just literally didn't know. Oh my gosh. So other flight attendants- Hero. No, God, that's why I'm just in love with her. Other flight attendants and the cockpit crew helped in the hospital as well. Even co-pilot Robert Bragg made rounds in his wheelchair. They visited the survivors and talked to them. And Dorothy Kelly said, quote, they were still our passengers. So even after the crash, they were going about making sure that everybody was being taken care of. Of the 396 souls on board the Pan Am flight, only 61 survived, including the three cockpit crewmen and four flight attendants. With all on board the KLM flight dead, this would bring the death toll to 583 people, making it the worst aviation disaster in history. I know I say this every episode in some regard, but why do we fly? To be fair, they weren't flying when this happened. Uh, they kind of were, one technically was speaking. Of. One was, one was kind of flying. It was trying to fly. Okay. <laughs> Had it flown, okay. it would not have happened. But I understand what you mean. You're correct. Okay. I understand. Why can't we all just be patient? Why can't we just go back to horses and buggies? That's a fair point. That's a fair point, Joss. But you also hate horses, so I don't know what you really want. I don't hate horses. I respect them enough to know that they shouldn't be ridden. <laughs> That's probably a fair point. God, you're funny. All right. So it didn't take long for the news of this horrible disaster spread worldwide. Reporters swarmed the scene of the wreck at the airport. One of the hangars had to be turned into a temporary morgue for the bodies. Investigators from the three countries involved, which were Spain, Holland, and the U.S. also arrived. And because, I'm not saying it's because they were meant that this happened, but I think this played a big part in it. All these investigators showed up and they could not get along until two of the investigators realized they were both born in Cuba, that they became friends and were actually able to start the investigation. Like, they were, like, trying to boss all the other ones around and were, like, telling them, like, get the fuck out and shit. And they lost so much precious time. But once they were like, oh, my God, you were born in Cuba. I was born in Cuba. And then they were like, cool, can we, like, investigate together? Anyway, I just, like, you couldn't put your differences aside. For it's fine. I just, I, I just can't. <laughs> All right, so it was determined that an unlikely chain of coincidences led to this tragic accident, and had any of them not occurred, this accident wouldn't have either. The first was the bomb planted by the terrorists that diverted the planes to the smaller airport. The second is that the tidal wave of traffic at Tenerife's airport happened on a Sunday afternoon when there were only two controllers in the tower. They are not used to handling that many airplanes at once. Three, the KLM crew was impatient to get started because of the strict Dutch laws for overtime. Four, they decided to refuel because of that, and that decision would seal the fate of everyone on board the KLM. 
That delayed both planes 30 minutes, allowing the fog to roll in, and it also weighed the jet down so it couldn't take off and clear the Pan Am plane on the runway. And five, while poor weather was very common at this airport, air traffic control tower at Tenerife was not equipped with radar to guide them and other planes during foggy days. So the official incident report is written by Spain. And it blames the accident on KLM Captain Van Zanten's A, decision to take off without permission, B, failing to stop takeoff when instructed by air traffic control, C, failing to abort takeoff when Pan Am said they were still on the runway, and D, failing to abort takeoff when the flight engineer identified that Pan Am had not cleared the runway. So they say that those are like, the he had four chances to stop and four chances to make sure that this didn't happen. But he chose to keep going. So he's kind of painted as the one at fault for this. And in the documentary, they definitely depict him as like a really mean bad guy. So I don't know entirely how fair that depiction was. But just from what I know, it was his impatience that led to this accident. So the Dutch refused to accept this and blame language barriers in the general confusion of Tenerife Airport, and the insurers pay out a record sum of over $3 billion in today's money. Most of the survivors suffer from depression and survivor's guilt after the crash. Robina Van Lanschop, the woman who stayed in Tenerife instead of boarding the KLM flight with her friends, is the only survivor from that plane. She especially, Holy shit. I know, I can't even imagine. She especially struggled with feelings of guilt for not fighting harder for her friends to stay with her on Tenerife. However, she said it was love that saved her that day. Robina and her boyfriend are still together to this day, and both were interviewed on the documentary I watched on Prime Video Crash of the Century. They said they have never been apart since. Of the 645 people who sat on these two flights, only 62 were left alive, including Robina, all the rest, 583 in total, perished in the accident. International communication laws were put in place to ensure something like this would never happen again. You cannot say the words, take off, until the plane is actually cleared for takeoff. You say, departure, instead. Ground radar has also improved significantly since the accident, and most airports have it now. And just to end on the love of my life, Dorothy... She was awarded the Silver Medal of Valor by the U.S. Air Force General for her heroic actions that day. After recovering from her injuries, she returned to the skies as a flight attendant for Pan Am and then United Airlines for decades. In December 1988, she was living in London, and one of her colleagues asked her to swap flights. She decided that she wanted to spend time with her family, so she said no. The flight she declined to go on was Pan Am 103. It got blown up while flying over Scotland, killing everyone on board. She was sent to help the grieving oh. relatives. Uh-huh. She narrowly missed that again. And so she was sent to help the grieving relatives and the other flight attendants uh, from that terrible, tragic accident that killed everyone on board. So how do you get on a plane after this? I don't like, know. But she literally not only got on a plane, but she kept working on them. And then that happened. I don't know how she got on a plane after that. After that, that is so clearly fucking, you know, God or Mother Earth or the universe just being like, take up knitting. I beg of you. Take up. Have you ever heard of puzzles? Do a puzzle. Please, God, just get out of the sky. Like, read a book. Oh, I just. <laughs> yeah, I the fact that 
she survived that big crash and then she narrowly missed dying and it, like plane crashes are very rare so rare and this yeah anyway <sighs> so she she's great and we love her bless her uh and anyway that was the horrible story of the 1977 tenerife airport disaster I don't even know if I want to say thank you. Um, yeah. Very well researched, very well presented. I, of all of the plane stories you've ever told me, that one has traumatized me the most. <laughs> I think about it every time I am taxiing on a runway. I want you to know that I was sitting in the Houston airport and I was like, what if I get decapitated by another plane right now? Because like, Normally, it's like, what if I fall out of the sky while I'm on a plane? Now you've added the element <laughs> of, like, what if I get into a plane crash? Yeah. So, anyway. It's fine. Your girlfriend that you fell in love with on in this sounds like a truly heroic heroine and good for her and the people who were able to help the other people that did survive. That is bleak. This is bleak shit. And this is why, again... The audacity of people in power positions needs to be brought down to three pegs. Because like you said, he had four opportunities to not be a dumbass and kill mm -hmm. 500 plus people. And he did not take any Almost of them. 600. All because yeah. he just wanted to get home. I, yeah. There's no excuse for that. And I absolutely think that he was at fault. But I think anyway. so too. From the information I know, I would say that you are correct and he is at fault for this accident. But it, it I just... I don't know what it is about that story that I it is just so unfathomable that anything like that could ever happen. And not with just two planes, but two jumbo jets. Like the worst possible plane to get in an accident like that. But there was not one, it was two, two of them. Like it could not have been more it could not have been worse. And you know, sixty two people survived, but out of over six hundred, you know? And Yeah. And so, oh God, anyway, and just the injuries that some of them sustained, and I just can't imagine that level of trauma and that level of survivor's guilt, and especially for those flight attendants who couldn't save more people. I left out some yeah. quotes that were a little too heartbreaking to say, uh, but just about some of the things that traumatized them the most, but it makes me happy to just say, sit at home and do puzzles all day. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I enjoy that. I... You're never – I've thought one or two times that you'd make a great flight attendant, but then I, like, think about how obsessed you are with plane crashes and you would absolutely die. So um, stay home and do your puzzles. But here's the thing. I might survive a plane crash just because I know all the little secrets, but at the end of the day, you can only do so much. You're not controlling that thing. That thing's controlling you, you know? So yes. You are playing God again. <laughs> Every time. I get so, it. I understand from a convenient standpoint why we fly, but ew, no, yeah. gross. The moral of the okay. story is don't ever fly again. And anyway, Jess, any other final thoughts or feelings? Or do you want to go ahead and tell me what you have for a spread? Absolutely not. We're moving on. Okay. Understood. <laughs> I completely understand. All right, Allison. All right. We are going to take it in. 180 degree direction from what you just did. <laughs> Good. Thank you. All right. <laughs> My story is titled Bye Sisters. <laughs> is this about James Charles? <laughs> you fucking. 
When you when you were like when you were like I I'm doing another disaster, I was like I'm talking about influencers. <laughs> this is why we make good friends because that's yes. the kind of stuff that you really enjoy researching, but this is the but then there's me, you know? So we make a good balance. Listen, we all have our things. All right. I'm gonna read my sources really quick just so I don't forget. As always, Miss Wikipedia, the James Charles page, and the Jeffree Star page, both. A Seventeen magazine article titled A Definitive Timeline of James Charles and Jeffree Star's Friendship and Messy Feud by Kelsey Steigman. Um, the List, An Untold Truth, The Untold Truth of James Charles by Christine Dixon. A Cut article that apparently I've read all my articles for the month and it won't tell me who wrote this article, but it's titled James Charles Allegations and the Accusations Explained by Somebody at the Cut. <laughs> and then a Vulture article titled the, A Complete Timeline of the James Charles Allegations and Controversies by Florence O'Connor and Zoe Haylock. Um, I also watched a couple of YouTube videos, including the James Charles a couple of James Charles's apology videos and Jeffree Star's video and Toddy Westbrook's video, which are title referenced in my story, as well as all of the drama getting explained by creator This Is For Aileen and The Rise and Fall of James Charles, a video by Tom Harlock. So, Allison. I can't wait. I think you probably know this about me. I love makeup YouTube. I have for a very long time, even well before I got into makeup myself over the last, like, year year and a half there's something about makeup videos that's very calming for me and like watching other people be good at something that has zero consequences to me is very like helpful for my daily life it's the same reason I like reality television and you know in conjunction it's like why I like watching Animal Crossing playthrough videos on YouTube low stakes okay low stakes. So in the last couple of years, I've gotten much more like into the drag race alumni makeup scene, specifically like Trixie Mattel and Kimchi. That's been like what more of what I've been watching. And I've kind of gotten away from the traditional makeup artist YouTube channels. There are a few reasons for this, but primarily this is something in the beauty influencer community called Dramageddon 1.0 and 2.0. Allison. Do you know anything about what Dramageddon was? I I really don't, actually, and I'm excited to learn. <laughs> it's, I can't say it's something that I've, I've ever researched, but I'm okay. really here for this. Okay, so I was hoping that you would say this, that you kind of, like, didn't know anything about this, because it is a wild journey, and as I was writing it out, I was like, how did none of us see, like, his ultimate demise coming? But... Here we are. So when I was trying to decide on a topic to surprise you with, I wanted to pick a story I knew would be hard to fit into another category down the road. So Allison, as we have established, I am covering the rise and very messy fall of one James Charles. So I'm really oh. excited about this. A I little... really don't know that much. <laughs> it's... Listen, and I'm going to preface this. This is a bunch of rich people being mean to each other on the internet. Like, at the end of the day, it is a bunch of rich, privileged influencers throwing fits at each other. Okay, so a little background on James before we get into it fully. James, whose full name is James Charles Dickinson, was born in Bethlehem, New York in 1999. Coming of Christ, we love it. Oh, my 
God. I didn't know that. <laughs> Did they change the name? Because they should. That's a little. I, yeah. I don't know. That's just where he was born. Upstate New York, small town. He said he was a little bit bullied in high school. And frankly, now that we know more about him, I'm not really surprised. But starting in 2010, as a preteen, so he's about 11 or 12 years old at this point, he begins uploading videos here and there to a now defunct YouTube channel featuring mostly music covers for a classmate named Emily and his Photoshop edits. He touted himself as a web designer and a Photoshop expert. As he got older, he started helping out his girlfriends in high school with their hair and makeup. His self-claimed makeup origin story started in 2015 or so when a friend had her makeup artist cancel on her the day of prom. So he swooped in to help, figuring he couldn't do that bad of a job. After the success, which he posted on Instagram, he began posting his makeup and hair artistry on Friends to an Instagram page and YouTube channel. In about September 2016 or so, he had a tweet go viral. You have probably seen this tweet, maybe. In the tweet, James is sitting for a senior photo that has clearly been highly photoshopped with a ton of makeup on. He captioned the photo saying he'd emailed the picture company and asked if he could come do the photo again with a ring light and a full face of makeup. In his version of the story, they obliged and were more than happy to participate. The viral tweet was retweeted by Zendaya and landed James Charles on Ellen to discuss the story, in which he tells... Ellen that this whole thing about how he'd brought a ring light and how he'd put on highlighter while they were taking the pictures and like all this funny stuff. Later on though, in one of James's first scandals, a fellow beauty influencer got mad at James and tweeted out proof that James made the whole thing up and photoshopped all of it. So, off to a rocky start. Day 1. Lied to Ellen Generous' face on live TV. We're here. I mean, we're here for the audacity. We're here for the audacity. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, she she definitely has some issues too, from what we know. Yes. In one of the videos I watched, the YouTuber was like, "Yeah," and then he went on Ellen Degenerate. I mean, Degenerous. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know much enough, about dude. that either, but I, I I have a a toe dipped in the warm waters of gossip yeah. in Hollywood. I think that she is just mean to her employees. I think that's her scandal. But I think that's that's I for a different too. podcast. Yes. Anyhow, after the viral tweet, James's fan base started begging for more YouTube content and thus began his rise to true YouTube fame. In October of 2016, riding on the tails of this viral tweet and a constantly growing fan base, CoverGirl, the makeup company most famous for its association with America's Next Top Model, announced that James would be their first male face for the brand. Now, keep some like timeline context awareness here. America was about to vote in Donald Trump as the president. So James being made the first male face for a traditionally very, very female oriented and in some regards problematic because of their association with the top model thing. Beauty line was a big deal that like they were allowing a man to come do this. So it was kind of one of the many steps that pushed the YouTube beauty community, particularly the male YouTube beauty community, to into the billion dollar industry it has become today. So, however, as we will quickly learn throughout the story, James really can't let a good thing just lie. He's very, very good at 
sticking his foot in his mouth and ruining any good thing that happens for him. So in February of 2017, when James is a senior in high school, he goes on a school trip to South Africa. Before leaving, while he's in the airport, he tweets a racist comment about potentially catching Ebola while in Africa. He immediately gets a ton of backlash from social media and his brand deals, and he quickly deletes the tweet and issues two apologies. The first apology is like two sentences long, and it was clearly written by a PR team. And the second is a iPhone notes app screenshot that was very clearly written by a 17, 18 year old boy. His second apology reads, and I quote, okay, I'm not going to post a bullshit apology. I was told what to say, and that's not how an apology should work. I am extremely sorry for my tweet, and I feel like shit for saying it. I'm traveling to Africa today with a few friends for a school trip. Ironically enough, it's an educational trip because we all know very little about the country, but are eager to learn. I am aware that the tweet was extremely offensive and degrading. I posted it to make fun of my friend's mistake, but did not think about what the tweet as a whole was implying. It was never my intent to offend anyone, and I am sorry. As a white cis male, I recognize my privilege and would never want to take that for granted, but I fucked up. I deleted everything before my plane took off, hoping that it would go away, which is completely the wrong way to handle problems such as this. I passed out and did not buy Wi-Fi. I feel awful for posting what I said. I understand why what I said was offensive and ignorant. I look forward to exploring the country and learning much more about the people and culture because clearly I know very little and have a lot to learn. End quote. Not anything else? Or, geez louise. That was the screenshot. I typed it out word for word from the picture. Thank you. So here's the thing that's interesting about the beauty community, particularly when it comes to men in the beauty community. And I've talked about this in some regard in like other platforms, but men do much better when it comes to marketing and promoting their brands in the makeup community than women do. Because again, misogyny and in particular, white gay men do very, very well. There are exceptions to this rule, but even people like Bretman Rock have had a harder time getting their platform to the same level that these people have, despite having a much less problematic past. And like, there's all of these weird, like internal homophobia. There's like a lot of transphobia in the community. And the thing that's also very interesting is that there's a lot of middle-aged white women that are in this community that like get completely bowled over in favor of these men that it's just like such a very strange because they're all coming from places of like well I'm a woman so like I don't get the same privileges that my male creators do and then the male creators are like well I'm gay and then you have the creators of color that are like um hello back here yeah (laughs) back here like literally like no representation all this stuff. And there's like a lot of like virtual virtue signaling in the community. It's just like a, it's kind of like a mess overall. And honestly, this kind of drama that happened that we'll get into has really like changed the layout of the community. And that's why, like, again, like what I was referencing, I started watching a lot more drag content as opposed to like straight makeup or like straight as in like not the sexuality, but just like only makeup content. (laughs) That was a poor way of phrasing it. But Yeah, so it's just there's a lot of interesting cultures happening in the community and 
a lot of people who feel marginalized but have a lot of privilege and the people who are actually marginalized are just like, fuck you all. Anyway, so James Charles tweets about Ebola and gives that lovely apology that we just heard. Now, CoverGirl releases a statement saying his views do not reflect their own, but they don't outright drop him from because of the scandal. They just slowly phase him out and eventually drop him um, a little bit later. So I forced you to listen to that whole apology because I wanted to set a precedent for how James apologizes because there's a whole lot of apologies coming. <laughs> so I'd like to note a few things here. He's very good at trying to push the blame elsewhere while simultaneously saying, I take full responsibility. Like, no shit, Sherlock, you typed the tweet. You're the one responsible. Right. Also, his tone and all of his apologies have a very similar vibe of, here's the evidence and why I did this, but also I'm sorry. And also, he definitely referred to Africa as a country multiple times in that apology. I don't know if you caught that. But uh, <laughs> sweet soul that he is. <laughs> and like he was going to South Africa so maybe in his head he was like sure. whatever but still incredible anyway James like we will learn in this pattern of behavior recovers very quickly from this scandal and we can only hope that his trip to South Africa the country not the continent helped out with his cis white male privilege in June of 2017, a couple months after this, he meets famed Jeffree Star at a KKW beauty launch party. KKW beauty is Kim Kardashian's beauty line. Got it. Jeffree had – say that again? I said thank you. I didn't know that, so thank you for clarifying. You're welcome. You're welcome. Jeffrey had broken into the beauty industry and was quickly making waves with his kind of insane branding and celebrity collabs. He'd previously been a controversial – comedy and punk musician and then he'd gotten really into makeup because he'd always kind of dressed in this avant-garde style and he found a different audience that he could kind of clean up his image with he and james quickly realized the power of teaming up to create viral content so how old were both of these they meet this time jeffrey's in his 30s james is 19 going on 20 or 18 going on 19 okay james is only 22 as of as we are speaking, he's only a 22-year-old person, and this has all happened thus far. So James graduates from high school. He goes to this thing for KKW Beauty where he meets Jeffrey, and at this point, this is when I think he starts moving to LA. He's getting much more into the influencer scene. So because, again, James can't keep his mouth shut, he manages to piss off the entire cast of the movie It <laughs> again. <laughs> Just rich people getting mad at each other. James Charles tweeted something along the lines of, I'm five minutes into the movie It, and it's garbage. And then one of the child actors that are in that film tweeted back and was like, you could have just kept your thoughts to yourself. And they get in a whole Twitter fight. James goes live on Instagram in the Uber after the movie and is like, I'm entitled to an opinion. Meh, 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 meh. And like all of the, t- all of the cast like tweet about it and get pissed. To rectify this situation, James does an iconic makeup tutorial of Pennywise the Clown on his channel that garners millions of views. This is around the time that I first started watching him. I vividly remember watching this video for the first time. It was so fun. I loved it. And say what we will 
about James Charles, but he really knows how to make sure his videos are topping charts. So. Good for him, I guess. Did it, was it, did yeah. it look good? Was it like. Yeah, he good... looked great. Yeah. Wow. Why does anybody in Hollywood ever post their opinion ever? I don't feel like that's a good idea. If I were in Hollywood, and here's I would the thing. delete all my social media. I, it's just too risky. Yes. Here's the thing. Like, well, and I mean, James is an influencer, so he can't. He relies on his social media to make money. He relies on controversy. And this is kind of why the makeup community, like, is a shithole in some regards. is because a lot of these creators in the mid-2010s were relying on controversy to promote their brands. And to be fair, at 18 years old, James is allowed to tweet that he doesn't like a movie. What he isn't allowed to do is not accept the consequences of his actions. Like, it's he true, can't be pissed I could tweet at... that and nobody would care. Yeah, exactly. The, the, but he has to understand that he's not just some random kid in a basement tweeting that anymore. He's right. got influence which as we come to see he doesn't particularly care what people think of him so after a few more public sightings at beauty influencer parties jeffrey and james finally released the first of several video collabs in early 2018 now when i tell you these collabs had the beauty internet by the balls i'm not exaggerating their collabs continued to launch them both into higher and higher internet fame Jeffrey had a successful beauty business at the time, and James began to follow in his footsteps, teasing the concept of product launches. He launches an apparel line in partnership with Jeffree Star's apparel line. He gets into making his own makeup, all of these things. So Jeffrey was kind of like a, at the place where James wanted to be, and James sat on his coattails and was able to coast above where Jeffree Star was because, sidebar for a second, Jeffree Star is a very controversial person. He has plenty of film footage of him saying the N-word, calling people the N-word in a derogatory sense, like a distorted, racist, and sexually exploitative past that comes to light the more and more famous he gets. But because we on the internet either care too much or don't care at all, we kept giving him airtime. So... They get together. They start doing collab videos. They do their very first collab video in 2018, right? Okay. So around the same time, Shane Dawson of Blackface and Fucking His Cat fame began oh filming. God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shane Dawson, not a great person. No. He began filming a five-part YouTube docuseries about Je Jeffree Star that culminated in over 165-plus million views altogether. The series showed the vulnerable side of the controversial Jeffree Star and featured appearances by James Charles. As Sean prepped to launch the series, he also did a collab with James in which he asked James who the worst celebrity he's ever met was. James answered saying Ariana Grande immediately for unfollowing him after some of his controversies with uh, Sean Mendez. Oh my God. Grande's fans quickly fucked his shit up on the internet and created a slew of unfollowers from all of his platform. They estimate about 2 million people unfollowed, followed, did all this stuff, which is a huge, huge thing. But ultimately, James's platform writes itself out again as James's followers see this happening and get more people to follow. Oh my so, God, what? It's like I'm so stuck after, in sixth grade. I'm sorry. But no, I'm literally. As I was writing this, I was like, I feel like I'm 12 years old. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. 
After a few more scandals in 2018, James was still managing to gain millions and millions of followers. By the beginning of 2019, Charles had won or been nominated for countless social media and beauty influencer awards, including Teen Choice Award, Kids Choice Award, Streamies, all that good jazz. He was becoming a household name amongst teen girls and quote-unquote, a gay icon for young teen boys looking for a way to express their more feminine side. Unfortunately, James also expressed transphobic comments after claiming he wasn't fully gay because he'd been attracted to a trans man before. He really can't keep his foot out of his mouth. Like, he just needs to keep his mouth shut. He releases more apologies for these types of things and has a couple of of celebrity snafus that he also has to release apologies for. The kid is basically like, every six months, all right, let's draft a new apology text. So, (laughs) despite all of this... 2019 was the year of James Charles. His YouTube channel hit 10 million subscribers and counting. He launched his beauty collab with Morphe and did his James Charles palette. He had done that at the end of 2018 and it had sold out in 10 minutes and was continuing to sell out as he put out new units in 2019. His apparel line was doing well and his world tour launching his makeup brand completely sold out and caused a full traffic standstill in Birmingham, UK while he was at the mall and they had to like call out the guard to help oh my god get traffic out. So clearly he's riding high on fame. At this point, for context, James is 20 years old. He's experiencing unprecedented amount of fame and money come his way in a relatively quick time. He started his YouTube channel late 2015. He had his first viral tweet go off in fall of 2016. He had his first scandal in 2017, hit 10 million followers in 2018, as well as launched his own product line. He has not even, like, gone to college. He's graduated high school in this time. And now in 2019 is, like, a multimillionaire, 20 years old, surrounded by people who are maybe not the best influence for his fame and money. Anyway, he's handled a lot of scandals and come out relatively unscathed, all things considered. He had a few industry mentors, including the famous Toddy Westbrook. Toddy is a veteran in the beauty community on YouTube, and they had been friends for a long time after James entered the scene. He did her wedding makeup in 2017, and they like have a very close relationship. She, he kind of views her as a mother figure. In one famous video, she cries as she expresses how proud she was of James's influence on the community as a gay man. Toddy also has a relationship with Jeffree Star, one that she comes to regret later on. So a little bit of an incestuous community, but it is what it is. So <laughs> Incestuous. Yeah. Incestuous, yeah. In January 2019, James hosts a now heavily ironic collab video with Tati, Jeffrey, and himself titled Messy Makeup Trivia. In the intro, James introduces Jeffrey saying, our first contestants left his eyebrows in 2018 and apparently all of his friends too, end quote. For context, Jeffrey ended up in a huge messy friendship breakup earlier in 2018 with fellow makeup artists Manny um, MUA, Gabriel Zamora, and Laura Lee. This drama, which spurred many accusatory videos from all parties, was titled Dramageddon. Also, sidebar, Manny is an ex-Mormon, and his content is hilarious, and I do still watch his channel. So, great. anyway, 
they had this, they were like a little creative collective. They had a friendship breakup. That's not what this podcast is about today. Maybe one day I'll do one on theirs, but this is, we're doing James today. But this was like the first fracture in the beauty community was these five influencers kind of breaking up as friends. They all did videos. It was a whole thing. So Jeffrey, quote unquote, left all of his friends in 2018 and was kind of rebranding as like pulling himself in to be with with James and Tati. So then in the same video, James goes on to introduce Tati saying, our last guest has been around for forever, but somehow has not had a scandal. Also in this video, James is quoted saying, Tati and Jeffrey have both been major inspirations and friends to me since day one. I love you both the most. Thank you both for always being the best friends literally in the entire world and being role models and inspiring me and just being real ones in the beauty community, end quote. Let this be a telltale sign of more to come. In February 2019, a month or so after the release of the Mecky, mm, messy makeup trivia video, Jeffrey and James attend Toddy's 37th birthday party. At the party, James hits on the waiter heavily to the point that Toddy's family was uncomfortable. Now, Allison, I want you to just put a pin in this fact because we're going to come back to it in a minute, okay? Also, why are you as a 37-year-old inviting a 20-year-old to your birthday party? I a lot Just, of questions. If it's not for press or if it's not, I I don't. Yeah. I have friends. I have trouble being friends with 20 year olds and it's not anything against them. We're just in s- such different parts of our yeah. lives. Wow. Okay. So pin in the birthday memory. So as James pointed out, Tati had been around for forever. She had a few lines of product, including a hair and nail supplement called Halo Beauty. Now take a quick trip back to 2019 with me in which tea and vitamin supplements were all any influencer was touting on social media. I'm sure you saw it. I saw it. The Kardashians were just full green tea beauty, all of that good jazz. So there was a rival vitamin company called Sugar Bear Hair that was all of the rage with Instagram influencers around April 2019. They had a lot of money for social media and they dumped it into influencers. So stay with me here. It's going to get messy for a second. So Coachella was in full swing during the month of April 2019. And as you may know, Coachella is spread across two weekends. So James and his little cohort of fellow influencers were able to get something that's called an artist pass for the first weekend, which gives you full security detail, access to like VIP, VIP areas to help avoid fan moms. So James goes, he has a great time. He posts a bunch of social media and like blows up so he and his friends decide that they want to go to the second weekend but they couldn't get any artist passes only vip passes which don't come with a security detail and don't come with extra access to these vip areas so james goes and is quickly mobbed by fans and is unable to like continue his day in any realistic way Luckily for James, he had heard through some fellow influencers that the vitamin company Sugar Bear Hair were offering artist passes in exchange for an Instagram story promoting their product. James quickly throws up a story. He's like in a hoodie. It's very clearly like he's reading a note script off his iPhone. Like it's such a like dumb, easy video. So he throws up this video and goes on his merry way to enjoy Coachella with security, access to the artist pass, all of that. Here is the irony, Allison. James had previously refused to promote Toddy's brand, Halo Beauty, which is basically the same thing, on his Instagram, 
claiming that pushing supplements on his predominantly teenage fan base was unethical. So naturally, Tati, owner of Halo Beauty, flips shit. She posts a bunch of Instagram live stories videoing herself crying, talking about feeling betrayed by an unnamed friend. James quickly posts another Black Square Apology Notes app story slide trying to explain the history behind everything, but it mostly fell on deaf ears. This betrayal, quote-unquote betrayal, Mm. began the launch of what the YouTube community called Dramageddon (laughs) 2.0. And it only gets worse from here. Yes, that's what I want. So... Right after Coachella and all of this stuff happens with Tati, James goes to the Met Gala as one of a select few internet influencers invited that year. It was a huge deal that these people were allowed to rub shoulders with the elite A-list guests, and James was riding high as a self-proclaimed door opener for internet stars. However, only a week later, Tati decides to blow James's shit up with a now infamous and deleted video titled, Bye Sister. In the video, which I've watched more than I would care to admit, Tati outlines all of the ways James hurt her and her brand with the Sugar Bear hair promotion. She also references his sexual manipulations. She harked back to her birthday dinner in February 2019. Tati recalled James saying that it didn't matter if the waiter he was aggressively flirting with was straight because he was famous, implying that Mm. they'd do whatever he wanted. She also recalled many other sexually aggressive attitudes on James's part that made her and her loved ones uncomfortable to be around. Referencing the now, my one of my favorite personal phrases ever, sucking dick and cock, which oh. I'm sure you've heard me say many times. Um, times. The drag community, particularly my favorite drag queen, Tix- Trixie Mattel, latched onto that and says it all the time. And now I say it all the time, but that's where it originally came from. Got it. Anyway, after the video was posted, Jeffrey Starr weighed in on Twitter saying, "There, quote, there is a reason that Nathan, Jeffrey's boyfriend at the time, banned James Charles from ever coming to our home again. There's a reason why I haven't seen him since at Glam Life Gurus, Toddy's Twitter handle, birthday in February. He is a danger to society. Everything Tati said is 100% true, end quote. Hmm. James quickly posted a rebuttal video titled, no more lies that I have also watched <laughs> more than once. And I would like to note that these videos were all more than 45 minutes long. Yeah, I'm sure they were. <laughs> In the video, James offers up damning proof that both Tati and Jeffrey explicitly lied. He included text receipts, videos, and more that corroborated his side of the story. So he's continuing that habit of like, I'm coming at you with evidence. I'm going to apologize, but I'm also going to say this is, like, why I was right. Got it. Kind of thing. And in his defense on this one, most of what they had said were lies. So um, he included text receipts, videos, and more that corroborated his side of the story. The waiter, whom he was accused of manipulating, had messaged him first on Instagram and initiated their sexual encounter. The waiter even posted his own video later on saying that he was bisexual and had consented to every step of the way. However, he also said that James was a terrible kisser, which I thought was hilarious. But okay, so they did actually. Okay. Yeah, so they I think they made out. Here's the thing. So two 30-slash-40-something-year-olds are... Fighting over the internet with a 19-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like... Yes. 
And they started it? Yes. Now, this doesn't mean that James is a good person, but sure. yes, for context, 30 and 40 year old people are getting mad over the actions of a 21 or 20 year old friend who is not behaving in a way that they think is appropriate for their spaces. And they go out and publicly say it instead of talking to their partner and going to bed at 9 p.m. like they should. Yes, because these people <laughs> make money off of controversy. Okay, nobody in the story it. is a good person. All right, heard heard that. So love it. James posts his video. No more lies. It is he in the when Tati posted her original vi- video. He lost two million followers, and Tati gained two million followers. So you're oh. seeing kind of an interesting pattern here. James posts his video, and Tati loses millions of followers. Jeffrey loses millions of followers, and James's page, if I remember correctly breaks 20 million followers um, from what, what what was it before do you know um by this point i want to say it was like in the 15 16 million range so wow anyway despite all of this jeffrey star doubles down he tweets at james's little brother who also has a following as a model and says quote why is your brother a predator end quote James then severs all financial ties with Jeffrey's merch company who had been helping him with his apparel line. Following this, Jeffrey then posts his own apology video titled Never Doing This Again, which I've only watched one time. Thank you. In it, he admits that most of his accusations came from rumors. He's quoted saying, There's a big part of the story that I didn't think a lot of people know, and that's the behind the scenes. There were a lot of people in my head. There were people telling me a lot of stuff, and I don't mean my own friends. I mean people that had known James. They were telling me things that was making me feel a whole other way, end quote. He also references mean texts he sent to James accusing him of molesting Grace and Dolan of the Dolan twin influence fame. In December 2018... The Dolan twins and Emma Chamberlain had joined in with James into what they titled a sister squad, sort of like an influencer house. The squad quickly disbanded in June 2019 after speculation of James pressuring the Dolan twins sexually. After all these apology videos and confession videos had died down, James came out on top. After losing 2 million followers to Tati, he quickly gained them all back and then some after it came out that both Jeffrey and Tati were manipulating the situation to gain them clout. Tati is currently in legal battle with Jeffrey's team. There were, was heavy speculation that Jeffrey and Tati conspired with Shane Dawson to ruin James's career in light of a makeup launch being promoted by Shane that would be rivaled by James's product. Clearly, that didn't work out for any of the parties involved. Tati went silent for a full year, and Jeffrey's products began to be dropped by brands and are now being sold in TJ Maxx, much to Jeffrey's chagrin. <laughs> but... After a full year of James posting normally throughout the pandemic, in June 2020, Tati finally breaks her silence with a video titled Breaking My Silence, in which she apologized to James for being manipulated by outside forces. She is quoted saying, James, I am so sorry that I allowed myself to be poisoned and weaponized against you. I'm sorry that I bought into any of their lives. Believing those lies and allowing myself to be gaslit into making that video is one of the biggest regrets of my life. End quote. She is 38 at this point, just keeping in mind, throughout the later half of 2020, (laughs) throughout the later half of 2020, James continued to make content and get in Twitter fights over celebrities making beauty lines, even though they don't wear makeup. His following count reached over 20 million followers on YouTube and 37 million on TikTok. 
But in 2021, Allison, accusations of grooming began Mm. to pop up everywhere. Mm -hmm. I should probably preface this. We are going to reference some uncomfortable topics, including grooming and uh, potential child abuse. So just FYI. Nothing too crazy, but just FYI. So accusations of grooming began popping up everywhere. In February 2021, a 16-year-old boy made a TikTok video claiming Charles had groomed and pressured him into sending explicit content over Snapchat. His accusations included explicit photos James had sent him and text exchanges between them. After this victim came forward, more began to come out of the woodwork with similar stories. James denied their accusations, saying he had been told they were legal adults. He continued posting content like nothing was happening. In March of 2021, Trisha Paytas and Ethan Klein, prior to their friendship breakup, had recently canceled David Dobrik for sexual assault accusations, and they called out several brands and award shows for supporting James, despite all of these grooming accusations. Trisha is also not a great person. Speaking of I'm racism, kind of Trisha. gathering that. From- None of these people are good people. Ethan yeah. Klein is hilarious, though. So... Ethan is quoted saying of James's Kid Choice Award win, quote, it's great because kids have always been his choice too, end quote. (gasps) (laughs) I debated putting that quote in there, and now I'm glad I did for the reaction I'm getting from you. Oh my god, dude, this is an even bigger plane crash than my story. This it is, is a so fucking much. disaster. Okay. So following this, James's brand deals begin to crumble. He is yeah. fired from a YouTube miniseries he hosted called Instant Influencer, which was actually a super fun show. They just needed a better host. I actually really enjoyed the show. Sue mm. me, I guess. But sure. You're um, Another 15-year-old victim comes out on TikTok with even more damning evidence claiming James knew he was 15 the whole time they were interacting. In April 2021, James finally breaks the silence on the matter in yet another apology video saying that his reasoning for the online manipulation was desperation, inexperience, and a misunderstanding of power dynamics. I quote, what I wasn't getting before is that the excitement that comes from talking to a celebrity is literally enough to make somebody do or say something they normally wouldn't, even if that celebrity isn't intentionally weaponizing their fame, money, or power. That's the concept that I just wasn't getting, but I now do, end quote. Also, James's quotes are hard to read because he talks in such a weird order. Anyway. Look at, do you hear the attempts at justification? Yeah. Do we see this pattern over and over and over again? Yes. From from my small seat here in Utah where I am better than everybody else, I am judging him profusely currently. Uh, yes. His words and actions. Uh, and and if he just kept his mouth involved. shut. It's like, it's also yes. hard to know because it's so hard not to get wrapped up in this shit. In this drama. And with everybody like, oh my god, like talking about it and talking about you. Mm-hmm. Like I, this is why I would never go on a reality dating show because I would turn into the worst person. All the years of therapy I've gone to would go out the window the second I stepped mm-hmm. foot outside of that limousine. The second. Like it would just, I'd become so fucking toxic. Yes. Okay, but here's the thing, Allison. He's not on a reality television show. Most of the things that he is putting out are heavily edited by a video editor he has a full pr team and he has a manager so like all of the twitter stuff is completely preventable him not messaging minors 
there are plenty of celebrities wow. who don't message minors. Like, that's the thing that's crazy is he's paying somebody thousands of dollars to keep him out of this shit, but he keeps ending up in it because he's stupid and he sure. just won't keep his mouth shut. I'm not so. defending the minor part. That's an excuse. Oh, yeah. No. Just like the Tati thing, the Jeffree Star, like you get mm-hmm. caught up in it. You get, I can understand yes. that feeling. Especially as like a 21 year old who these are people who were like your mentors. I can see Understood, a little yeah. bit of like the snowball. But the thing that kills me is that he was paying people to make sure he stayed out of the shit and they either were failing or he just wasn't listening to them. Got it. Anyway, so following this apology video, Morphe, James's largest partnership, tweeted saying, we do not condone inappropriate online behavior of any form. We have act- we have been actively looking into the recent allegations against James Charles and have suspended marketing of the Morphe by James Charles collaboration while we continue to evaluate and monitor the situation, end quote. Many influencers and celebrity friends unfollowed and disavowed James in the following week, including several of the Kardashians who had done videos with him in the past. Oh my... On April 16th, James and Morphe officially announced the end of to their relationship. They estimated several million dollars in lost profits for James because of this. YouTube joins in and temporarily demonetizes his channel. No one was ever made privy to how long the demonetization lasted, but they demonetized him for a time. Finally, in late April 2021, a former employee of Charles came out regarding an employment scandal in which she claimed she was wrongfully terminated and owed tons of money in back pay. James, who had been silent on the internet since the Morphe announcement, broke his silence to address the lawsuit the two are now in. He claimed his employees are like family to him, which is not very comforting, to the best of to the best of our knowledge. Listen, if you are working for a company that says we treat our employees like family, run the other way, okay? That's all. They should treat you like good neighbors. Better. They should treat you like employees. Yes, like human beings who are their employees. It'll be great. Yes. To the best of my knowledge, what I could read, they are still in a legal battle that is being settled um, in court. He offered her a settlement that she refused to take. So, not sure what that means. This is James and who... This is one of his former employees Got it. who was okay. wrongfully terminated, according to her, and owed back pay for over for like extra hours worked that he was never received. She said that she'd been working like 80 hour got weeks it. and okay, never got okay, paid okay, for okay. the overtime. So after this final silence break regarding his employee, James spent about two months off the Internet completely. No posting on any platform, which was the longest time he'd gone without posting. And then he proceeds to begin posting like normal every week since then. A -hmm. deep dive into his influencer stats show that he currently has 24 million followers on YouTube and makes an estimated $75,000 a month off of his video monetization through YouTube. That's not to mention his Instagram or his Twitter. His first video after breaking his silence on everything is titled Baking My Own Crumbled Cookies. Checks out, Sawyer Hemsley. Checks out. End quote done <laughs> like crumble as an r crumble as in crumble the utah cookie brand as in crumble from the as in crumble we graduated we yes. were we went to the og yes. crumble building yes. guys i gotta say this has nothing to do with what jess said when i was in oregon they had crumble bakeries there and you know my Oregon friends would be like oh have you ever tried crumble and i was like you bitch have i ever fucking tried crumble I ate in their OG 
bakery, okay? Mm-hmm. I basically mm-hmm. invented Crumble. That's why I did mm-hmm. not. But I supported mm-hmm. them from day one because they're from the town we are from. Mm-hmm. Nobody mm-hmm. cares at all, but here I am. I'm going to yeah. post a 47-minute video about it later if you want to watch yes. it. Can't wait. And here's the thing that I just think is so funny about it being like the Crumble, Crumble being his first brand deal after all of this is that Crumble definitely did not do any COVID mitigation for their employees. I don't know if we remember, but Crumble for sure had a bunch of Instagram stories of their employee party in December 2020 prior to vaccination widespread of them all sitting maskless with like over 100 employees in a small room celebrating. And a bunch of people got COVID from that event and they just like didn't do anything. And Sawyer Hemsley just like kept blocking people on his Instagram instead of um, owning up to his shit. And his Instagram is now private that I know of. And also uh, Crumble, I mean, say we will, Crumble does a good job with their social media marketing. So I guess it would make sense. But I I don't follow them. I did not know any of this. I just know that I like their cookies. Their cookies are great. They're kind of assholes with people, and they supported James Charles after. Yeah. Um, well, and here's the thing. Pedophilia allegations? Yes. Gr- yeah. And here's the thing. Crumble is a franchise branded thing. So, like, corporate still gets part of your profits, but it is franchised into, like, local ownership. So, you know, do what you will with that information. Got it. But sure, sure, sure. that is Allison Dramageddon 2.0. Thanks for coming. Wow. So... I remember when the pedophilia allegations were coming out. I remember that. Mm-hmm. I didn't read too much into it. I saw some shit on it, but I was just like, I honestly kind of stopped looking into it because I was like, there's no way his career could mm-hmm. get past this. But clearly it has. It does. What, like, what's he doing now? I don't even know. He is still doing beauty YouTube. He's still on, he's on YouTube. He does brand collabs. He does a lot of like video game Twitch streaming. Here's the thing. None of the people, none of the victims were able to bring legal allegations against him. So in the classic court of public opinion, a lot of, I mean, and if you think about it, his followership are a lot of like teenage girls. And so if I'm 15 years old and I don't fully understand the, like the concept of what grooming means, and I just know that James Charles is posting videos with like Nickelodeon color palettes, I'm going to keep watching And then as more and more teenage girls, you know, it's like his follower base is very young. And so it's not, they're not understanding the consequences of his actions in the same way that like us as 25 year olds do. So. Understood. Very interesting. That's a very fair point that you made there, Jess. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Anyway. Wow. This was so much fun. I loved it. Yeah, this was great. Thank I I appreciate you doing something so different. Always. Like like a bigger left turn than Captain Grubbs took to get his plane off the runway. That was (laughs) 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 You fucking accelerated in a completely different direction. Yep. And I appreciate you for that. So you're welcome. Thank you. Anytime. This is why we're best friends. This is why we are good partnership. Yes. We always keep it. We always keep it fun. Always keep it a hundred over here. Sure do. Sure do. 
Well, I hated uh, every minute that I said that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was just gonna move past it. Uh, we will see you next week for another three to one shots, and then we are doing amazing women in history, which I already also maybe or absolutely may not have my story picked out. I'm not quite sure. I, I definitely. I do. love it. Anyway, we will see you all next week, uh, and then two weeks from now, and maybe three weeks. I don't know. Hopefully, for quite some time down the road absolutely absolutely great well thanks guys yep sure thank you and go follow and then unfollow a bunch of people from hollywood Cost yes drama. but while you're at it you can follow us on instagram at salt lime Storytime and at facebook please like rate and subscribe on all of the things not to sound like james charles here but uh don't forget to hit that button below that says subscribe <laughs> thanks mm. sisters bye sisters Bye.